Hello, patrons. Hey there. What's up, patrons? I was trying to think of a way to segue to the first thing we're talking about as opposed to the second thing we're talking about. Anyway, new week, new world, you might say. Um, the world of burnout. Trump has been kicked off Twitter and kicked from the House. And now we got, how do you, how do you describe Biden? Milk toast. Geriatric. <laughs> He's certainly old. He's like the oldest president to sit in office like on the day of inauguration. And isn't it also funny the way um, conservatives are complaining about the power that internet companies have and they were the front line against net neutrality? I, I want to say look, the one thing that I thought was interesting about the whole Biden inauguration was we usually accuse conservatives of being the nostalgic ones. And definitely like Trump's inauguration was extremely and even milit well, actually very overtly militantly nostalgic. But everything about Biden's inauguration was just echoing 2008, super heavy, like right down to like the vanilla rhetoric. You sub out hope and change for unity and coming together. Healing. Lady Gaga and I think it was what J-Lo who were giving the performances, you know, icons. And Garth Brooks, too. Garth Brooks, yeah. Like icons of like the mid 2000s. Kind Garth of Brooks was a nice touch. He was a nice little bone to middle America. Yeah, like it really had the feeling of like one person described it as like, oh, you know, the Obama era was this wonderful time that people look back on with a lot of fondness. And now the adults are back in the room after all this craziness has kind of been passed on. Right? Yeah, that's funny because all of those performers could have performed at Obama's. Uh, well, maybe not Gaga, but Obama's no, first Gaga. inauguration. It's just like, maybe. OK, we're just going to erase that era now. Yeah, basically, yeah. I wonder if Lady Gaga, was she around in 2008? I think she was. I, I think, think so. she, the fame came what out was it? Like around 2008, 2009. Poker, so she, Poker Face was the first single? Sometime around there, yeah. Yeah, but she was in No Doubt before. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was Gwen well, Stefani. Oops. Anyway, her breakthrough cut that was, out, right? <laughs> yeah. Her breakthrough year was actually 2008, so maybe. Go. She could have uh, been at Bob's thing. But this yes. is what I'm saying. I am in my 30s, so fuck it. Pop, 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 poker face. <laughs> it's true. It is funny. But this is why it was weird, because it was like really nostalgic, right? Like everything was about like conjuring up this kind of warm feeling for the Obama era, making people feel safe. The adults are back in the room. Uh, kind of like you're saying, you know, we're going to pay attention to science and reason. And we'll have so might you say, by way of segue, Matt, might you say that we are feeling burnt out? <laughs> wait, wait, can I just say one other, one other thing quickly about the, about, the, about the inauguration, the ceremonies? I thought it was, uh, it's it, they have such weird secularity there in the States because you're right. They were saying like science, and but then they had all these prayers and all this God yeah. stuff mixed in there too, which is... Super weird. And I don't know. It's funny because I think in Canada, maybe in our constitution, it's like a lot more clearly defined, but that would just never be allowed in Canada to, to talk about God in like a public ceremony like that. Like that's just a total infringement on like on like on government and public neutrality. Separation. I'm uh, one last thing, though. I'm I'm very interested to see how the aesthetic dimension turns out between Kamala and Biden. I mean, Kamala and Joe, because like Joe and Obama had like a dope aesthetic going between yeah. them. Yeah, they're yeah. like those pictures of them together, like sh like 
I don't know all the and even that little like funny little video that Obama did that he did like a little comedy routine in the White House and like that was dope and then we had four years of like a man shouting over a helicopter into the camera at our faces and now <laughs> we're, we have Joe and Kamala and we're gonna have to see I, I can't imagine them having the same sort of broy dynamic that obtained between biden and obama anyway yeah you can cut that out sorry (laughs) um thank you for putting up with our pre-episode banter this is kind of the only time in the week that we talk anyway so we had to we had to cover the media landscape and speaking of media landscape because we gotta do this whole segue thing today uh the topic was actually chosen by you a month ago um aletheia Caitlin and all the other people who liked their suggestion wanted us to do an episode on Byung-Chul Han's Burnout Society, which we all read. Um, a little bit of background. Byung-Chul Han, I had to look most of this up because, well, this was the second book that I read of his, but he's a German theorist, maybe a public intellectual. I'm not sure um, if any German recluse. If any yeah. Germans know this guy, uh, you can comment and let us know if he shows up on TV or anything. He, he doesn't like his picture taken, I, I read. And fun fact, I think he's a Swiss German, isn't he? Yeah, he's Swiss German, Korean born. Well, he got a degree in Korea and then moved to Basel. Yeah, he was studying yeah. uh, metallurgy in, in before he moved to Germany and took up philosophy. Ooh, I was talking to some people on a stream or, or maybe in the Discord, and they said that he was overrated. But I don't know how he can be overrated because I never really heard of him until a few months ago, even though he has like 16 books out. Same. Yeah. It's yeah. only our patrons who brought them to my attention. He does. I don't think that like he's showed up at any on any of the syllabi of the kinds of philosophy classes I've taken, maybe more in cultural studies and stuff like that. But Right, right. Well, his main thing is uh, the transparency thesis of neoliberalism, which is uh, sort of paradoxical because he doesn't like showing up on camera and he doesn't like any private details about his life being known. (laughs) So he's opposite of public intellectual in terms of that, but his writing style and most of his books, which are often under 100 pages, seem to be written for a popular audience, not an academic audience. (laughs) But it does help to have a bit of background in the stuff he's talking about. Sure. Anyway, we, yeah. we will conduct this uh, episode as if you haven't read it, so that even if you haven't read it, you can get something out of uh, what he talks about. It only I read it in a sitting. It's only it's short. What less than or sixty pages or something like that. So yeah, it's like yeah, it's, it's really short. It took no time to read. If you like it, it might be worth a look. Burnout, burnout. Uh, so yeah, the burnout. I mean, this kind of fits with our earlier discussion of of from. Trump to Biden, the burnout is basically a result, of course, we live in a society, basically a result of living in a society. And if you know anything about the Foucault disciplinary society model, uh, Deleuze, interestingly, said that we move from a disciplinary society to a control society. Foucault himself said we move from a disciplinary society to a biopolitical society. And mm-hmm. Byung-Chul Han here is throwing his hat in the ring to say we move from a disciplinary society to an achievement society. And the flip side of the achievement there is burnout. 
Yeah, or uh, it's it's also translated as as tiredness society sometimes. The 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 German word, I don't know, our German patrons can correct me if it's the, the Müdigkeitsgesellschaft is the is the tiredness society. Kind of mm-hmm. Müdig means I'm like hey, yeah, ich habe Müdig or ich bin Müdig or whatever. I'm tired. It sounds like what it is. I like the translation or the uh, the uh, pronunciation there, Eric. Yeah, I've been practicing. I've just been saying it over and over and again, <laughs> in preparing for this moment. All right, guys, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what it reminded me of when I was looking into this, and again, I know very little about this, so this is inferring a lot, but was actually a lot of Weber's arguments about the Protestant work ethic and the kind of centrality of work uh, that many proto-capitalist societies um, placed uh, upon labor, right? Uh, and it's got a moral value. And, you know, one of the things that Weber constantly pointed out was exactly this idea that people now tend to look at their time not as something that should be used to develop themselves spiritually or aesthetically, but it's time that should be allocated to labor because you live in a competitive society and the degree to which you're able to succeed in that demonstrates your worth or your value to a certain extent. And he points out that this is going to create a profound sense of alienation and dissatisfaction since a lot of people in these societies aren't able to actually just sit there uh, and enjoy leisure. Right. Right. And that's what, this is the difference between like a a factory job type situation where you kind of go to work and leave your work at work. The, the entrepreneurial or performative or achievement society means that you have to do work at home. Now you have to like, as academics, I'm sure you guys, get this is like if you're not publishing there's someone else who's publishing there's someone else who's Mm -hmm. trying to get that that last spot at the university so even your leisure has to be a form of self-production into you know a commodification a self-commodification for the purposes of trying to have a retirement eventually yeah yeah for sure i've uh, actually i was thinking about reading a quote here from the book i've got open here that is maybe a nice exemplification of the shift from the disciplinary society to the um, uh, what was the achievement society? So he says, uh, disciplinary society is a society of negativity. It is defined by the negativity of prohibition. The negative model verb that governs it is may not. By the same token, the negativity of compul- of compulsion adheres to should. Uh, achievement society more and more is in the process of discarding negativity. Increasing deregulation is abolishing it. Unlimited can is the positive model verb of achievement society. Its plural form, the affirmation, yes, we can, epitomizes achievement society's positive orientation. Prohibition, uh, commandments, and the law are replaced by projects, initiatives, and motivation. Disciplinary society is still governed by no. Uh, Negativity produces madmen and criminals. In contrast, achievement society creates depressives and losers. All right, so we're going to have to break that down. Why don't you take a first crack at it, Eric? Well, the first thing about burnout society, and this is, I'm just taking this from examples he gave, is, is you know, like go onto a, go onto the subway at rush hour, and you'll you'll see that we're living in a burnout society in in a big way. You'll see people passed out on the subway, sleeping in like impossible positions. I I always remember sitting on the going like even if i'm going to school at some weird hour like around in the evening i'll see people just sleeping in in preposterous positions and it's because everyone's burnt out you you even look at the news and you see things like nurses burning out doctors burning out students burning out right 
like it's you get like four hours of sleep a day and you work 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 and it's it's a sort of social pattern that's been developing for quite some time he stretches this argument back into history a little bit i mean the guy's Mm -hmm. like what 60 years old he's seen quite a bit so the burnout society is is the society we're in. It's the it's the flip side of the achievement society and the can do attitude. It's it's not the negativity. It's an excess of positivity. It's the excess of that can do attitude, and it 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 builds up in our in, in our ability to keep going and keep doing it. And when we fail, when we collapse, when we can't do it anymore, we take that to be a failure on our part and we don't question the society we live in and really what he's doing is he's giving us the tools to to do that and to conceptualize it by saying we live in a burnout society this is actually you're not alone here if you're if you feel depressed or if you feel even ADHD seems like the opposite of depression it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of, it's a hyperactivity but it's still the result of the same sort of process yeah, I actually can remember distinctly where I first felt like an entrepreneur of the self, as he puts it, uh, though never in like an uncritical or kind of uh, embracing way uh, that's sometimes described in the book. It was actually I went to a career counselor, of all things. And I basically sat there with this career counselor. I was like, blah, blah, blah. Like, what should I do? I have one year left in my PhD. Like, I published these papers, blah, 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 blah. Like, what's going on? And she's like, well, like, you've done your job, but isn't there other things you could do? Like, why don't you create a website? Why don't you get on Twitter? I recommend that if you do get on Twitter, you try to tweet at least 20 times a day during these time periods because that'll maximize your viewership. Maybe create something like a YouTube channel, which will get you exposure on this. And what ended up happening when I came away from this conversation is I sat there thinking to myself, like, well, I'm pretty lazy just doing what they expect me to do based on this list of criteria, right? Because there's so much more I could be doing. that isn't explicitly laid out, but is now increasingly implicitly expected of you uh, if you want to be able to compete. And what really struck me was also, again, how personalized a lot of this was. Um, because they'd say, well, things on Twitter should be more personal and affective. You should talk about your internal life, your feelings about things, what's going on. So you turn yourself into a kind of marketing tool, right? A personality, if you were. Uh, And I found that all extremely odd, right? Because it really testified to what Pills was talking about, right? How we don't even live in an academic factory anymore. You know, my job is essentially a 24-hour job. And if I'm not using all that time effectively, well, then I should feel to a certain extent guilty about it because there are other things I could be doing. Yeah, that's exactly what he's describing. So I thought just to get everyone on the same page, I'll just read the dust jacket because I think it actually does a good job. Uh, which says, our competitive, service-oriented societies are taking a toll on the late modern individual. Rather than improving life, multitasking, user-friendly technology, and the culture of convenience are producing disorders that range from depression to attention deficit disorder to borderline personality disorder. Byung-Chul Han interprets the spreading malaise as an inability to manage negative experiences in an age characterized by excessive positivity, and the universal availability of people and goods. So stress and exhaustion are a result, obviously, as we said. But um, it's interesting the way he uses the terms positive and negative mm. here. It's not, it's not like positive means happy and negative means unhappy. It's rather uh, what, what kind of information you receive in like a positive feedback loop 
or a negative feedback loop. Or in Foucault's disciplinary society, you're told no in terms of the space that you're allowed to inhabit. If you cross the boundary into the space that you're not allowed to be in, that's when you're punished. Uh, if you act crazy, then you're put into the asylum sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and in a positive, his version of positivity means that you can't filter information or negative information out anymore because uh, you have to say yes to everything. You have to react to everything. And that's kind of where what's Matt, what Matt's talking about in terms of Twitter comes in here. You have to have an opinion on everything. You're asked for your opinion at all times a day. And uh, you have to have an opinion to almost be the commodity, the presence commodity that you are. Mm. And I kind of find it funny that we're doing a podcast <laughs> and uh, YouTube because doing, doing exactly what you have to do because being an academic is not good enough anymore. Yeah. I should say there's also a weird and interesting critique of performativity in his work, right? This kind of pastiche like self-performance that we engage in to transform our personalities and our internal life into social capital. Uh, but it's really very different than the kind of performativity that you see somebody like Judith Butler arguing for, where uh, performativity can be kind of a self-conscious attempt to play with your personality uh, or play with your identity, developing it in certain aesthetically intriguing ways. Uh, this is a kind of performativity that's relentlessly pushed upon you uh, by the society that you live in. And mm -hmm. oftentimes it's not necessarily something you even want to engage in, but it's something that you feel compelled to do. Like you're playing out the script. Right? Well, it's, yeah. it's interesting because it, <clears throat> it reminds me like the, the, the pressure that we feel, uh, like the social pressure, you know, and this transition from, uh, you know, the disciplinary society to the achievement society. It kind of reminded me of that transition that Zizek sometimes talks about in psychoanalysis yeah. where, yeah. you know, before um, he talked about how like psychoanalysts and Freud's time, right, would talk about how like patients, like analyzans, their problem would often be a problem of, of not of of an of having too much desire that they that they can't suppress like they're supposed to in society, right? So they feel ashamed for having too much desire, yeah, so, because the social pressure is to push it in. But now it's like the opposite, where people analyzans are 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 finding that they're anxious and ashamed of not having enough desire. So they feel the social pressure to have desire to enjoy, enjoy more things, oh, yeah. you know, have more weird, like try out new sexual experiments, do more things and, 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 and like, you know, uh, fulfill all your desires, yeah. but then people will feel shame if they're like, well, I don't really have these desires and like these messages that I'm supposed to be enjoying all these things. Yeah. I don't really want to. So maybe there's something wrong with me. Get a so, hobby, start a business on the side, make sure you're investing your money. You have to, you have to constantly be saying yes to things that you didn't even know you had to say yes for. Exactly. So you're, 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 it's like, you're supposed to be unsatisfied with all these things. Uh, yeah. You're supposed to have more desire for things now. It, like it's Hegelian in a way too. He says Hegel is one of the most important philosophers from him. So you also take the negative positive thing in, in, um, in a Hegelian fashion as well. So in, in the, in the, the old way, the old society, right. Is, is, characterized by a dialectic of negativity and just to give an example i feel like 9-11 might have been like the culmination of this right the the idea of setting up an other who is foreign who is outside you who is elsewhere someone who's an invader 
or even, I mean, you can just keep switching frames, an immunological perspective, right? A virus is an other. It's something outside of you that we have to defend against. And the negativity is because that thing wants to enter you, whatever you may be, your body, your community, your society, whatever it may be, and negate you, right? And then in order to assert yourself against this sort of violence of the other, you have to assert your being, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to negate the negation. That's a famous phrase from Hegel, negating the, ne the negation. Whereas the problem we're faced with today, which, which I think is different, like 9-11, right, set up an other. Whereas today what we're experiencing is this excess of positivity, not of negativity and otherness, but of positivity and sameness. And so that struggle almost goes inside of us. And this was and all a lot more true than like about three weeks ago than it is now. <laughs> yeah, because we're in the midst of a pandemic and this immunological view, maybe we're not done with it, I don't know. But but in any case, the the positivity is, is the positive society, this achievement society is, is a war with yourself, basically. Like, why can't I do this? Why am mm. I so tired? Why don't I give a shit about anything? And you feel bad about it. And you don't question mm. society. You think it's your failure. Your exactly. lack of positivity, in a sense, is your own demon now. And you're, and, and the struggle goes inside. And, and he gives a great example of the master-slave dialectic, right? Like, everyone today is their own master and slave at the same time. The struggle is the struggle is real and it's inside you. And if you feel like being lazy and doing nothing and there's a voice in your head saying, get up and go, get up and do this, and it's making you anxious or neurotic or depressed, that's what he's talking about. We're living in this burnout society, which is just the flip side of the coin of the achievement society, is that the, the losers and the failures are the ones who can't live up to the expectations that are put on them by society yeah. at large i'll frame it a different way right like um it, it, there was an interesting moment in the biography by steven schwartzman uh who you know, is a the ceo uh, of, a, of several major companies and a multi-billionaire and schwartzman in the book uh talks about a discussion he had with his dad who owned a small drugstore uh and his dad had a comfortable middle class life uh, and schwartzman goes to him and basically is like why don't you actually market this more effectively because we can take your little drugstore and make it huge. And the dad responded by saying, why would I want to do that? It'll be more work for me. I'm happy. I have two cars. I have a nice house. I sent my kids to college. And that's enough. Uh, at Schwartzman's takeaway from this, it wasn't actually that his dad was right. He actually says his dad lacked entrepreneurial drive, which is why he never became as successful as his son. Right? And it's really intriguing because his dad was, by all accounts, even his own account, happy. Right? He was contented with who he was and what he achieved. And, and I'm not saying this to kind of argue for some kind of puritanical uh, anti-hedonism or something, right? But I think it really does demonstrate uh, how this yearning for more uh, and to always try to commodify yourself uh, and to commodify anything else around you can become temperamentally actuated across the entirety of our society in some really interesting and malicious ways, right? I remember there was a study done by... Um, Ian Shapiro, who's a democratic theorist uh, at Yale, and he was looking at why it is that people want more money, uh, even when they don't get any kind of concrete benefit from it, right? 
Uh, and he said, if you look at like ancient doctrines about marginal utility, not ancient doctrines, like uh, modernist doctrines about marginal utility, every dollar that you should receive on top of a dollar that you have should become less and less valuable, right? If I have a million dollars, having $10 million should be less meaningful than that. If I have $10 million, having $100 million should be less meaningful and so on and so forth. But that's not the way these people tend to approach it. Uh, and Shapiro's conclusion is that the interesting thing is that people tend to approach money and other forms of social capital and gain, uh, not according to doctrines of marginal utility, but rather the way addicts treat drugs, right? Uh, where if your first hit is pretty good, but after that you need a bigger and bigger hit each time in order to get the same rush. And if that doesn't seem to embody this ethos of this kind of achievement society, I don't know what does, right? Mm. Uh, it really is almost this kind of drug stimulating you to go further and further if you can and never to feel satiated uh, with what's achievable at any given moment. Yeah, or another... Another good like metaphor for the shift along those lines too is taking taking drugs for headaches, for instance, right? Like a headache in the old society, the headache is something outside you, and you take a drug to uh, you know cure the headache. And then in the new society, the drug is now causing the headache. It's you're becoming dependent on it. If you don't have it, you you get headaches. <laughs> Basically, the drug causes it. It's it's almost like the pharmacon argument that Derrida, where the the cure sort of shifts into becoming the poison, but it's internal and it's a dependency rather than something external. You have to build walls or defend against, you know, Trump is like the last gasp of the disciplinary society in this sort of way. Right. Well, I don't know if this was in the book. You can tell me because I have it in my reading notes and I'm not sure if I, if it was my own words or his, but uh, his thesis is that repression is like the energy stored in a spring. So you push it down and that kind of builds up energy to kind of resist. And he he's dealing with it in the psychoanalytic sense that the, mm -hmm. the disciplinary society produces hysterics because, you know, you have to follow your social role. You're not allowed to break your social role. But when you have no social roles defined, what you have is infinite freedom and infinite freedom is bad for, I mean, it's not bad necessarily. It's what causes a depressive state because that's like the str the spring now has been stretched out so that there's no more springiness in it. So the, the exhaustion is the spring being stretched out because you have nothing, the, no limit to push against because the limit is just be more yourself, be more actualized, express your desires mm. more freely. So when you have nothing Jeez. to push against, then it becomes, well, what the hell do I do? I can wake up with an infinity of opportunity. So I want to speak to that quickly. Like, so I think it's, this is, a, it's a good, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's sort of the point where I was not sure if I agreed with uh, the author because I felt like, you know, is it really the case that the problem, like, I think the, the, the distinction between positivity and negativity and, and like that, that part makes sense, but like, is it really the f is it really the case that there's nothing to live up to like isn't it actually the case that there are social roles that like the, that the culture make up that you know we're supposed to be this hyper productive successful like finding and there's like images of it right on social media that people to various extents wish that they could be that thing so i feel like there is still a pressure to fit into a social role and like a prohibition like there is still a kind of pressure to be like well, you can't just be this ordinary person. Like, so there's a shame with being this like ordinary person. 
So I guess I wasn't convinced that this was like, you know, to, to hearken back to the last podcast where we're, we have to think about this more radically. I was like thinking, well, I'm not sure if this is actually as radically different from the Freudian repression. It's just a different kind because the messages and the social roles are instilled with this positivity and this like, you know, fulfilling your desire. I don't know. Well, there's there's something to live up to. The thing that's different there is that one is saying you can't do something. Or even you shouldn't do something like a moral imperative. For a woman 100 years ago, it's you can't go to university. But now the difference is you should go to university. So one is drawing a negative, a restriction, whereas the should is you should go to university, plus you should start your own business, plus you should have hobbies on the side, plus you should be the mother and everything that you were before. So it's a... it's demanding that you use your freedom rather than saying you can't do anything and that would be the negative but isn't that a pro- isn't that a prohibition on being just like ordinary being satisfied with like your with your prescribed role like isn't that saying like you know you're i mean you could frame it that way i guess but there's no actual restriction there there's no like, like one of the examples yeah. he gives is is he says in in germany right like people are envious of how well koreans do on these tests and people want to live up to that. That's the that's the sort of achievement standard, right? But he says what what people don't realize is how many Koreans are overwhelmed by this and end up committing suicide, for instance, as a result of this this drive to achieve, right? Like we we see it all the times, so like international students who are studying to become doctors or lawyers or engineers and they're just working around the clock they sleep in the library and they bring their toothbrush yeah. and we think wow that's like that's a model of discipline and and achievement that I want to like why can't I be that but the truth is like that is causing a whole load of like whatever what would you call it like psychosocial problems are emerging because of that sort of model of achievement Right. So you have this sort of strange situation where where, say, Asian students are achieving so much, but then we hide the fact that it's taking this psychological toll and not only on their minds, but I mean, he he describes the way Korea modernized so quickly. Right. It went from a sort of place based, community based kind of agrarian society and it just became hyper modernized like very quickly. And that created so Korea is probably one of the like exemplars of this. And I, maybe we can think about like U. The U.S. is kind of lagging behind this sort of development as well. Like they're sort of maybe in the transitional period still, whereas a lot of Asian societies have reached it. Germany is certainly there as well. They're doing a lot better than other European nations on these standards as well. But but it's creating these these issues and he says that the psychosocial landscape or topology is defined now by these these neurological diseases that are emerging because of this achievement this imperative to achieve so you're getting again things like ADD depression whatever obsessive compulsive disorder and borderline personality disorders and things like that so there is the standard and it's good but we're ignoring the toll that it's taking and who like is it sustainable is it something we need i mean is it something we want to just go back to when the pandemic is over maybe not yeah because i don't get the sense that this is kind of a conservative argument for a return to 
forms of traditionalism and set identitarian roles uh, that were better than what we see now. And I kind of agree with Victor here that uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the kind of freedom that he's talking about, right, or that's available at this point. Uh, it's just that the kind of burdens uh, that are associated with that, right, and the sense that whatever you're doing isn't good enough. Uh, and I think you can see the kind of cultural pushback against this uh, in a lot of the forms of art and even pop culture uh, that became popular in the late 2000s through the mid-2010s. Uh, Think about somebody like Seth Rogen and every movie in that vein, right? Uh, what you really see with Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill uh, and all these kind of films uh, is the slacker or the stoner becoming almost kind of uh, counterintuitively a hero or a revolutionary against the system, right? Uh, because he or she is somebody who refuses to participate in the achievement society, right? Uh, they want to just earn enough money to be able to sit at home, play video games, hang out with their friends, form a little community based on smoking weed, and have a good time that way, right? Uh, and this isn't to say that there's some kind of great depths to these movies, but I do think that they reflect an enemy on the part, certainly of American society, about how much pressure uh, is allocated to our lives alongside the new kinds of freedom that are also available. Well, in a way, those those symbolic resolutions where we say, like, I reject that and I'm just going to live my sort of stoner burnout lifestyle in peace is, is sort of the opposite of what he's describing. Because you have, you have a society that prescribes freedom as the goal, right? We need to be free. And this is the source of this excess of positivity. And when we internalize it and then we can't live up to it, what we do is we form compulsions. And these compulsions, well, he calls it compulsive freedom. And in a way, like compulsion is a constraint, right? It's something you, you're exactly. compelled to do. And so in this way, freedom and constraint come to be the same thing. There's no difference. There is no real freedom. He says- But that's, but that's actually, that's where I kind of disagreed with him was like, that it's not something like that's, that was kind of my point before that like, yeah, you can say that the thing we're trying to live up to is freedom, but I think that that's not really true because as I said, spontaneously, these cultural figures show up that people are trying to live up to. It's not just like freedom. It's not like, oh, I just want to be free. You have like, you know, the, the Instagram spectacle of people that you're looking at having a great time and you want to live up to those. Like it's more determined than just freedom, but like maybe the ideology of freedom produced the hyper real environment that we're in and the technological environment that we're in right now but i don't think that in our mind it's like people are like oh you have to be free it's like they're they're seeing specific things and like cultural you know um like like um different cultural symbology and like lifestyles that are specific that they want to live up to and then they feel shame and burnout because they're like not doing enough to get to those various ideals right well, it's certainly, is, it's certainly not freedom in the Hegelian sense of being self-determined. It's freedom to be who you are deep inside or whatever, or the freedom to consume as you wish, like the compulsion to enjoy. So it's not the freedom yeah. to actually be who you are. Yeah, like the idea isn't that there's one section of society, the wealthy, that are free and they're exploiting another section of the society yeah. who are fettered and right. chained yeah, yeah, to yeah. wage slavery. Like that's the old Marxist view. And he's saying this doesn't yeah. do this doesn't cut it anymore. Because we're not we're not a 
enslaved section of the population to a bourgeoisie. That's not the case anymore. We auto-exploit. We exploit ourselves. We voluntarily give up our own freedom in a, in a certain way, right? Every time you touch your phone, every time you go on Facebook, every time you allow big data to extract information from yourself, you're giving up a sort of that 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 maybe classical liberal freedom of the private sphere and the idea of interiority and the idea that that's my space and nobody else's and nobody has a right to see what I'm doing with my own personal freedom like that's just not that's no longer a reality the idea that we're protecting our freedom from Facebook and Twitter is just absurd now because we live in this big data society and we voluntarily subject ourselves to it. Like it's a new version of the question that Deleuze and Guattari asked in Anti-Oedipus where they said, why do we desire our own enslavement? Like it seems like we just don't even want to be free. And what he's saying is freedom is a standard that we just can't live up to and we internalize that failure and we enslave ourselves because that's much more efficient, right? The old model of capitalism is one section of society exploiting another, that which, which is very inefficient and you can still have solidarity with the exploited. But in this new society, you can't have solidarity with the exploited because again, we are the masters and the slaves at the same yeah. time. We voluntarily exploit ourselves and whether we know we're doing that or not is inconsequential because it's a social pattern that he's talking, he's not talking about individual psychology and what we know or don't know. Happy Friday, yeah. folks. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I think Enjoy your weekend. <laughs> the, the one thing that I wanted to say, just to kind of finish my point, right, is that you know, the, the kind of inverse image from what you see with the Slachter revolutionary uh, that you saw in some films that were released around the time of this book was also the resurgence uh, of mythological figures uh, in pop cinema, people like superheroes who are simultaneously geniuses, extremely wealthy, in rip shape, always have attractive women, and so on and so forth, right? And I think these two grinding areas that you can see express the real tension in our culture that he's talking about in this book, right? On the one hand, some people see being a burnout as a, revolution, as a revolutionary act, precisely because they choose not to self-enslave, at least in the kind of way that's talked about in this book. Uh, but of course, then they're just becoming the slaves to their own habits, right? Uh, or to various forms of substance abuse. Uh, or, you know, they buy into this image of the person who should have it all, right? Uh, who can't just be even good at one thing, but has to be a complete human being capable of expressing every iteration of themselves through consumption, right? Yeah. Uh, and the question that I have drawing upon like what, what Eric was saying is whether or not that this is a social problem or whether it's actually a testament to some deeper distaste for freedom that you see, genuine freedom, self-determining freedom uh, in human psychology. Because there are some people who have been willing to flirt with that idea. Uh, a good example would be Eric Fromm, right? Yeah. Uh, in his book, The Sane Society, Fromm says... The problem wasn't just Nazi society, right? Uh, the problem was that most people don't want to be free, self-determiners, right? Uh, because it creates this endemic sense of chaos in their view of reality. Uh, and consequently, they'll even be willing to accept unfreedom uh, if that provides them with a sense of order and atliness and regularity in the world. Yeah, that's interesting because he, he, says, he says something along these lines too. He says, you know, like... It's almost like we never wanted to be free in the first place. Yeah. Like in a way, we invented God in order that we cannot be free because we have to do what 
will atone for our guilt. That's a, that's yeah. the idea. We have we have a debt to God. We have guilt. And really the, the new version of that now is the is national debt, right? All the politicians always talk about how they uh, my hands are tied, right? Like this is what Biden is probably going to start. He's going to start sending these signals out in the next couple weeks and when the honeymoon is over and we're all like fuck this idiot is he's going to be saying I well that I can't do because of the budget, you know. I got a the, the deficit. We're in a deficit. My hands are tied. And it's just the new version of of enslavement. So he does kind of I, I cheated and looked at another book, the the psychopolitics <laughs> book, the the slightly newer one. But I think I think the argument Get is out. still in burnout society as well as we well, yeah, we never desired to be free in the first place. We just find a new form of 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 servitude to jump into so matt yeah like earlier you said you know i don't think this is an argument for going back to something and you're right yeah. i don't think it is and i think mostly like uh chul hawk is uh, who is it what is it um young chul han is his who? last name han han yeah, like, i never got the sense like alistair mcintyre or even max <laughs> weber saying yeah, like, han. once upon a time things were so much better everybody had their role come now max weber never though. said that at no, no, all the, the book the, no, but, the book is definitely the book is definitely <laughs> descriptive like i don't think i don't necessarily think it's pr prescriptive although there's there's definitely like a lot of charge statements that make it obvious that he thinks that some of these things are bad but i do think this is like an interesting example of of like critical theory and like you know kind of horseshoe theory where i think like someone like patrick denine could read this book and be like yes i love this like exactly that's what i mean this is yeah like, like it's like, very this is, you know, easy the... to make this into a reaction no, you're right i did get that frankfurt school vibe too of like there's nothing we can do there's the crushing weight of the culture industry over our heads and then that's just the way it is so fuck you i'm not going to tell you what to do next denine would be like well yeah that's why we need like prescribed gender roles with a thick culture that like tells us what our social role is supposed to be because like that's going to make us happier and, yeah he's not prescriptive in that way in yeah. no no so. oh, definitely not uh who is hun is not sorry there's one yeah. there's one yeah. thing that we're missing here in our uh recap of the text and that's the role of the other because you're right that there's this new instated tyranny but now it's very much self-instated for him and he says the cause for that is that now there is no other the entrepreneur has no other it has no boss it has no employees it's self-starting um, because the entrepreneur has no negativity. It doesn't have those bounds. So the other is only reliant on him, him or herself. And then that's the cause of depression is that not, not that the, the spring is being pushed down. It's that the spring is spread out too far, I guess, because you, you don't have others to actually relate to. And you could reinstate this into market relations and say, you know, every... Every other person who's doing anything remotely similar to you is now competition. There's no sense of an emancipatory politic through a class or through organized, organized politics because everybody has to you know, succeed on their own terms, not relative to somebody else. I mean, relative. wait, I said that wrong. Relative to other people that are competition, but there is no real other that actual, actually enters your experience. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminded me, just to go back to Victor's point, uh, of that Zizek anecdote, right? Uh, that mm -hmm. the worst form of exploitation that can come is self-exploitation. Uh, and this propensity to internalize the norms of ideological domination, right? It's not when your dad tells you you have to go to grandma and, and you have no choice. It's when your dad tells you 
it's your choice whether you want to go, but you do know that your grandmother loves you, so you should yeah. want to go. That's where the real problem lies, right? And That's true. You can map that perfectly onto what like people think now. It's like you know, it's not that you have to go on Twitter, but like a lot of people are on Twitter and like they're having they're they're having yeah. a good time. I mean, right? I've it's argued like... this all to you before, and I know yeah, exactly. that because I was just like, look, like, we got to be competitive. We got to do this and. That's exactly how I felt when I was at this meeting, right? Where I was like, I really don't necessarily want to do all these things. I feel like I'm doing enough already. But then, you know, that internalized voice in your mind, you know, the postmodern superego, I guess, is like, well, don't you want to be competitive? Don't you want to do everything you can to be successful? Don't you want to achieve, right? So why aren't you doing these things? Yeah. And it's combined with an expressivist ethic, right? Because it's like, you can go online and you can express your personality, right? Don't you want to share yourself with the world? Yeah, exactly. Maybe we should talk about the Bartleby part of this book, though, toward the end. I don't know if you want to get to that yet or not, Pills. The Bartleby case chapter. One one thing before we get there, um, I think the, the I wrote specifically in my notes while writing this in caps, this needs more Lacan. Because of exactly <laughs> yeah. what you're saying. I thought that too. Because of exactly yeah. what you're saying, that is the imposition of the other demanding you to succeed. So that is exactly. in the same sense a tyranny. But that's not what Byung-Hul Chan's saying because he's saying that there's a reaction to this which is depressive. Basically, not that you are forcing yourself to try hard and then you quit. It's that you just try hard until there's no energy left in you and that's why you're depressed. Because depression is not self-hatred. Depression is, is exhaustion. Isn't it a crisis of desire that like you stop desiring? Yeah, because you've desired too much. It's not because yeah. you're desiring the wrong things, because that would be a different uh, psychological state. That would be no, it's lack. It's lack of desire. I think mm -hmm. that would be the hysteric, though. The hysteric is like self-punishing, whereas the depressed or the just if you're in depression, you don't desire because you've desired too much, not because you're punishing yourself. So I think that's a key distinction to be made that I would actually probably side with Lacan on this. Yeah, same. That was my feeling as well earlier. Like, I think it's, I agree that there is a role for the other in a way. And, and you can understand that with Lacan. Yeah. And we've been, we've been endorsing this book pretty hard, but I think we were talking right before we started uh, recording here and all of us had problems with it, problems with the writing style. But I think, why don't we get to our critique after we talk about the Bartleby case? And the Bartleby case, this should be, I think, a YouTube video because it was written on by Deleuze. It was written on by Foucault. And now it's written... Zizek, too. And Zizek as well. Always wearing the I prefer not to shirts and the Obey shirts. And a Gombin, too. A Gombin does the Bartleby. Yeah, he, he kind of claims that they all read, they all read Bar the Bartleby story wrong because they read it from either like a disciplinary society point of view or an immunological perspective or basically a perspective where the other or negativity plays a big role and they look at i prefer not to as a refusal right like that's all oh, that's the progressive act of refusal i mean mm -hmm. i'm 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 not going to consent i'm not going to i'm going to refuse and he says that's that's a silly way to read it because, like, obviously, uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the story, Bartleby, like, refuses everything and just stands in a courtyard until he dies. <laughs> he refuses, like, life itself and just, in, like, embraces death. <laughs> and he it's says, kind of like, their readings don't 
really like before we jive with that ending there but yeah i'm i'm jumping way ahead before sorry. we go further why don't we explain what the bartleby case is so it's a is it a short story or a part of a it's a melville Mel- short story about wall street yeah. and working being a the guy's like a copy a copyist or he's like, called a scrivener like, so all he does is yeah that's they a, didn't have photocopy machines so you just have one person uh copy documents out by hand to make duplicates and the story is told not from Bartleby's perspective but from his like middle manager type boss who he gets asked to do or Bartleby gets asked to do things in the office and eventually he's just like I prefer not to and he won't do anything that he's told and the narrator sort of resents him for this because he's not being a, a proper employee like everybody else is. Yeah, at the end, Bartleby just kind of stands in a courtyard and there's like a little bit of nature, like maybe like a little shock of grass, but he's like in New York and like the Wall Street district or whatever. And he kind of just like, he gets to the point where he just dies. Like he stops, he refuses to like, feed himself he refuses to perform like basic biological functions and he just he just kind of dies but some of these i guess i guess the point is that some of some of the other readings take this up as like a revolutionary act to say i i prefer like the zizek shirt yeah it's it's a revolutionary act it's the polar opposite of when he wears the shirt that says obey or when you put on the glasses and the advertisement just says you're free to do as we tell you or whatever. Isn't it also interesting that that uh, Chul Han does not uh, reference Zizek's reading of the Bartleby case, like of the Bartleby case in the book? No. He doesn't reference like any Lacan or Zizek. It seems like he's not really into that. No, he's all up in Agamben and Kafka and things like that. Like I, I wouldn't say he's unaware of those things, but oh, yeah, sure, yeah. he, he say, chooses I, not to. I think <laughs> I agree with uh, Eric's reading here uh, of the Bartleby story, though. I, I haven't read it, right? But uh, tip from... My reading of like Moby Dick, right? The kind of self-denial, uh, self and social denial that you see people like Ahab engage in uh, isn't usually treated very positively by Melville, right? Like Ahab starts by basically starting to dissociate from his company. Then he starts from, uh, by dissociating from the crew. And then finally, in the kind of final act, he ends up throwing away his pipe, which was like a menial pleasure and just decides, all I'm going to commit to is hunting this whale. And that's going to be my obsession. I deny everything else in life except for this singular passion right uh, and obviously this is treated as a kind of insane act uh, and based upon the reading the kind of sense i got from bartleby was exactly like eric's it almost reminded me of camus l'étranger right uh who at the end is seen as almost this kind of proto-revolutionary figure even though he's a nihilist who overtly says i don't really believe in anything i don't really do anything for any concrete reasons i just am and in some senses the ultimate act uh for me would be to not be which is eventually what's going to end up happening, right? Yeah, that's the big difference uh, between Ahab and Bartleby, though, is that Ahab was consumed by passion for something, whereas mm-hmm. Bartleby just preferred not to do anything, including eating <laughs> yeah. at the end, so yeah, he starves to death. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, right? I mean, there's this kind of self-abnegation, but it's the same kind of gesture, right, of just gradually withdrawing from the world and throwing away uh, as many of your social ties and social obligations as you can. To the point where you become less and less of a person, right? Yeah. So what is what is like uh, Chulhan's main point with the Bartleby? Like, how does he want to read it? I don't know if I I can't remember right now. So I'm asking you guys. I think uh, the, it, you got to contrast it with Agamben's reading. That's that's right. what he's doing. So I, I think the quote here kind of sums it up. Um, 
and and there's another thing we didn't mention is that is that in in this burnout society the i goes to being a project yourself right. is a project you are a project that you work on right and you have to build yourself into a successful human being uh but he, he says bartleby does not fail in the project of being an i monotonous copying leaves no free space in which private initiative would prove necessary or even possible what makes Bartleby sick is not excessive positivity or possibility. He's not burdened by the late modern imperative of letting his self flourish. Maybe a little shot at Nussbaum there. The mm. activity of copying in particular does not admit initiative. Bartleby, who still lives in the society of conventions and institutions, does not know the wearing out of the ego that leads to the depressive eye-tiredness. But the problem is Agamben elevates Bartleby to a metaphysical position of the highest potency, Hans says. And Agamben says, this is the philosophical constellation to which Bartleby the Scrivener belongs. As a scribe who has stopped writing, Bartleby is the extreme figure of the nothing from which all creation derives, and at the same time he constitutes the most implacable vindication of this nothing as pure absolute potentiality. The Scrivener has become the writing tablet he is now nothing other than his white sheet so he calls this an onto theological reading of the bartleby story and he disagrees with this reading because yeah, again yeah. he doesn't pay attention to those pathological elements that he wants to talk about depression anxiety add right. and 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 the refusal to almost the refusal to live not just the refusal to participate in a corrupt society or an in onto theological kind of constellation yeah and i think you could also just criticize this from a purely hegelian point of view right i mean what's the point of being pure potentiality with having a completely white canvas upon which to write if you've so neutered yourself uh that you have absolutely nothing that you want to say and in fact where you decide that not saying anything uh, is in and of itself an act of defiance in some way shape or form Right. Yeah, Bartleby's Dasein is a negative being unto death, which yeah. contradicts Agamben's interpretation. And I'm, I'm not going to lie, I've, I haven't liked Agamben for a long time, in part because I feel that he does have this tendency to like to appeal to exactly these kind of ontotheological tropes, and the more radical seeming they sound, the more he finds them appealing. And I He's always trying to offer an even more radical rating. Yeah, right? exactly, right? He, <laughs> well, that's it. He falls right into that paradigm that I find so frustrating, right? It's like, no, we need to push pass any kind of positivity towards pure negativity because pure negativity is paradoxically the most positive thing we can have because it's absolute potentiality and it's just like shut the fuck up <laughs> shut the fuck up i'm just so tired of that yeah i can't <laughs> this was a month ago but can you remind me because that that sounds it doesn't sound like bartleby's suffering from an excess of positivity it sounds like he begins and ends as nothing so i don't i can't remember where that fits into the argument yeah, that's what he says. Um, he says uh, Bartleby does not suffer from excess possibility oh. or positivity. So is Bartleby more honest than the rest of us, not nihilists? I mean, I, I think that's the point: is that Bartleby's refusal to do what he is able to do to that oh. like his refusal to follow the "you can do this." He refuses you can do to be it. a project. Yeah, he Yeah, yeah. I think that might be a way to, to be put a, a project. It. Yeah. And the problem is the ontotheological readings make 
this big deal out of the refusal. But for for Han, the refusal is predicated on the refusal of the being able. So it's not it's not like a uh, I don't think it's supposed to be a, a story of 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 hope where we can right. just we can just withdraw our consent from from something we we dislike about society. It's 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 a, again about internalizing the limits of the can do by running up against our own limits to you know be able to do something to 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 actualize our potential like we have unlimited potential we're told the sky's the limit but i think bartleby is supposed to be a sort of i mean again bartleby seems to be before the burnout society might have developed it's a, it's, a, it's an old story but he's 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 arguing against these other readings of it. One more great uh, little bit we can touch on that we'd be remiss to skip is uh, Han's discussion of boredom versus hyperactivity. Um, and the, the quote quotation that I remember him bringing up is animals multitask or something like that. And that boredom is where creativity, self-reflection, kind of the values that the philosophical values that we have, they come out of being bored, thinking about what could be and not using your time to generate or create or produce or commodify, but rather just being bored. And one of Eric's favorite quotes come out of, comes out of here. So I'm not going to take it away from you. You can bring it up, but the contrast of hyperactivity as the hyper positivity that eventually just drains your ability to pay attention to things carefully in what we might say is a phenomenological sense of being aware of your surroundings. And then the application of that, of course, to uh, social media, our favorite topic. I think this actually applies to the Bartleby case, though, because um, Schopenhauer had a really great argument uh, in the world as well in representation, where he says many of the philosophers hitherto have not really analyzed the importance of boredom, uh, but I'm going to grant it substantial ontological significance. And he says the reason uh, that we should allocate so much attention to boredom is Boredom shows you how life is not worth living by itself because being bored is essentially having nothing but life and time available to you um, and nothing more, right? Uh, and he says, if life was actually worth living for its own sake, we would never be bored because we could be content with mere existence, but we're not. There always has to be something that fills us up uh, or gives us something to do. You know, Schopenhauer has his own arguments about this. But it kind of reminded me of this Bartleby uh, example, right? Because what ends up happening with Bartleby at the end is he strips away so much that eventually at the end you have to imagine that the kind of passage he takes into nothingness is a really bored, resigned one rather than some epic gesture of defiance. Yeah. Right? It's almost like he just finds everything so tedious now that he's not going to bother with anything any longer because what's the fucking point? Heidegger says yeah. the mood of boredom is like allowing the world to retreat from you as if you you could seize upon it, but you kind of let it let it go. But we're I I, I set yeah. you up, Eric, for your favorite quote. Maybe I'll, I'll lead into it by saying I I guess boredom today in modern society is maybe the equivalent of leisure in in ancient Greek society, right? We just say we need leisure to have philosophy, and today we need boredom to tell stories, but. But the problem is we don't want to be bored anymore. We can't handle it. <laughs> our <laughs> our threshold for boredom is so low 
that we can't even watch old movies anymore. I mean, like, sure, yeah. like, like film buffs aside, we can't even watch old movies, especially not movies that exercise that sort of Paul Schrader transcendental style. If you ever go to watch the tree of life, right? Like some people think the tree of life is just the most boring fucking movie they've ever seen. Cause it's just slow cinema. It's got long takes. It's got deep shots, deep focus, right? So our threshold for boredom is gone. And our b- boredom is when we tell stories. This is, this is Benjamin's complaint is that we don't, like an event happens, a big event happens. Let's whatever nine eleven, a big event happens, and we don't we can we don't we can't blink, but that there's a thousand explanations thrown in our direction, right? We're we're overstimulated and we can't be bored. But for Benjamin, I mean the big quote is, "Boredom is the dream bird that hatches the egg of experience." There it is. And in another way, <laughs> boredom is the time where we make up stories about things and we pass on culture and knowledge in a, in a certain way that we don't do anymore. Yeah, I, I would actually give that mm. a bit of an Adornian twist, right? Because one of the things that Adorno and Horkheimer point out in all their work on the culture industry, and I've always thought this was observant, is that precisely because we refuse to be bored any longer, we tend to enter into hyperreal stimuli that are offered to us by many of these different outlets, right? Whether we're talking about manic uh, pop culture uh, or we're talking about, you know, drugs and alcohol and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'm not here to disparage all those since I think they have their place, right? Uh, but they do insist that, no, you know, in a healthier society, we would see boredom or leisure time as an opportunity to actually reflect critically on the, the social conditions in which we live uh, and to ask ourselves in what sense they could be made better, Right. Uh, I don't want to get too much into that, but I think it's very true to this Benjaminian ethos, right? That rather than approaching boredom productively, right, uh, we approach it as a problem that almost has to be managed and solved through consumption and through, in this case, the culture industry. Right? Or even even creatively approaching boredom, right? Like yeah. boredom is it's supposed better, to be yeah. like a psychological canvas on which to project our fantasies and our emotions and our our sort of ways of life and 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 try yeah. to put them in in a narrative form that we can pass down, right? Like Benjamin was was on the radio a lot, telling stories back in the day. There's a book called Radio Benjamin that has transcripts of all the, and he just sort of tells children's stories and and reads little poems and things like that and it's awesome but we don't we don't do that anymore we don't care for stories anymore and it's it's unfortunate and it's part of the burnout society and our our tolerance in the face of overstimulation information overload we just no longer have any tolerance for just sitting and being with ourselves and being with our thoughts and being with that sort of grand psychological canvas that we might call boredom yeah i mean i've referenced this book before but i like it so much that it deserves to be referenced again you know neil postman points out that uh during the 1860s people who uh went to go listen to abe lincoln uh and various pro-slavery uh defenders speak were willing to sit down and listen to them talk for four hours at a time including an intermission right uh and one of the points he asked is who do you think would be willing to listen to a four-hour debate today even about an extremely important topic, right? Uh, I know a lot of people on Twitter who are complaining that the Trump-Biden uh, debate was too long, right? Even though it was barely an hour, right? Uh, and most of the things that we want have to be compressed down to five, ten minutes. 
Victor, do you have any uh, reflections before I move to my last musing? Um, no, I guess I'm just a little bored over here. I oh. don't know. Well, that's good. You can. It's the uh, nest. What is it? The mythic egg or net? Dream egg. Dream egg of creativity. Yeah, the 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 dream bird that hatches the egg of experience. I'm trying to face my boredom boredom head on. And all right. So the very last question that I have here is the question of form. Uh, The form in which it's written, which I personally found frustrating, uh, because first of all, as we mentioned, it's only. 60 pages or so, maybe 70. Um, it's very pithy and it almost is like he writes every sentence almost so that it could be a quotation, uh, like a Twitter status almost. That was, that was my impression (laughs) of it. So I found, I felt you should tweet the book out uh, (laughs) line by line. Um, I, I found that, Anytime that I got frustrated with a thesis or an assertion, they're never defended and you don't have time to, you know, go deeper into it. And I am the kind of person who kind of knows most of what he's talking about, too. And I I want it more developed. So I was wondering if you think this is uh, an audience or for an academic audience, not for an academic audience, if he if he believes that we're overstimulated then why is he writing a book that's more or less a list of tweets <laughs> and he's 16 books in what like f- six years or something like that i think it's actually more than that but they are very digestible very for quick sure. very short books they're made so that you don't get bored reading them paradoxical okay, of a drug that is paradoxical didn't you say it was made to be quoted and in terms of being an entrepreneur right he's an academic name doesn't really write academic books i mean i shouldn't say that i haven't read them all but most of them are you know similar page length they're kind of extended papers so i was wondering you were calling it theory light theory light which i like right because you should be as an academic writing stuff that inspires people to go read more theory um, and you should be trying to get ideas out there rather than focusing on minutia. But I guess I faced or I got in the face sort of the thing that I espouse and hope for. Um, but then I even found myself saying, well, I wish he would talk about this a little more. And I wish he would defend this thesis of negativity yeah. versus positivity. So I wanted to uh, go around. We'll start with Eric and just comment on the comment on the form here. Yeah, the style is a very sort of pithy, aphoristic, concise style. At first, yeah, it wasn't. I'm not used to reading this sort of stuff because I'm trying to read for a dissertation, and I'm I'm used to I'm used to heavily footnoted and reference things, and this one's a little more sparse. But I think I I came to appreciate it, especially after I watched. There's a documentary out there about about. Han as well and he actually narrates quite a bit of it and and after I sort of watched it and and looked at his sort of tarrying with the with the boredom and tarrying with the moments of silence and I sort of saw that now in his writing style it, it's like it's it's slow it's meant to make you stop and think not run ahead and see what's next and I don't know in a way it reflects his points that he's trying to make overall and i really liked 
again on that idea of of being bored he says like the the person who's bored just gives in to the boredom and tries to get away from it and doesn't realize what it is that's making them bored but the person who is tolerant of boredom uh can spend a little more time and figure out what it is so if you're you're walking for example and the one with the high tolerance figures out it's it's walking that makes them bored so they dance <laughs> and <laughs> and he says dancing or gliding is an entirely new form of motion it's not running or jogging which is just walking sped up it's a new form of motion it says only human beings can dance <laughs> that's that's a whole sentence would, would you find that in Deleuze and Guattari or, or Descartes only human beings can dance full stop <laughs> It is just, it is uh, only human beings can dance. It may be that boredom seized him while walking so that after and through this attack of boredom, he would make the step from walking to dancing. So it's uh, so it's kind of like this whole book is a little bit like a little a, a dance. He's tarrying with the, not with the negative, that's a, a Zizekian thing. He's tarrying with the positive, but he's, he's, he's dancing through it and he's trying to uh, encourage us to, hop onto his wavelength i think and i i i came to appreciate it in a in a strange way after being a little resistant at first yeah i mean i i would almost contrast it with other big post postmodernist tomes like infinite jest uh or anything by the late thomas pynchon which try to almost respond to our condition the other way by just presenting such a massive information uh that you almost feel overwhelmed by it and you f are supposed to feel like you're integrated into a totalizing system that isn't going to let you go and that you'll never fully understand. And, you know, this books can't do that effectively. Uh, but I, the way I saw this book was that it reminded me a lot more of something by Roland Barth or Marshall McLuhan, you know, this kind of 60s-ish works that were commenting on similar problems in the culture uh, and that their aesthetic is designed to express the, both express and criticize the culture uh, that they're a part of, right? Uh, because certainly he's very cognizant of the fact that this kind of plithy style appealing to affect uh, and sensibility is deeply reflective uh, of the kind of society that is criticizing, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it's almost like it's a concession to that in an ironic sense, uh, an acknowledgement of that if you're going to try to change people's mind, this is now what you have to do, right? Uh, and so it's going to become a stylistic exercise in critiquing using the aesthetic sensibilities of the society at hand, right? And so I don't know. I thought it was creative that way. Yeah. In terms of entrepreneurialism, the, the word that came to mind with this book was sloganeering, which is exactly the opposite of what the content is. So maybe it was an ironic choice. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Victor. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I really liked what Eric said. I thought that that was well put. And uh, I think that it's true. I mean, the, the book did make me uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I would definitely recommend it to our li to our listeners. It's since it's so short, it's it's and it's a pretty easy read. It's like a nice way. It's a nice like wetting your beak with some theory. But I think there's there's some good ideas here. But I do think it also suffers from the typical like kind of critical like diagnostic of society and like the malaise of society kind of theory work that they all do where they make these kind of broad sweeping statements and 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 maybe more so in this book too because it is shorter and it is pithy. That as as Pills said, right, that there are certainly claims that are made that, you know, from my own 
you know, uh, in the process of writing a dissertation, like rigorous, like it's like, oh yeah, well, are you gonna, like, I want to know more about that claim a little bit here and there, but, but it was enjoyable, would recommend it. But yeah, just typical, you know, making broad sweeping statements about society and how it's making us sick and all that in these really broad ways that, that are really affectively charged and do get hit you in the gut. And you're like, Hey, there's something to this. But that also makes me a bit suspicious of them. Well, I all, overall, I agree with what Eric said. I do that. There's the other side of me that is like, oh, yeah, it's like tugging at me. It's like making me be like, yeah, like society is this way. And like we are turning into this. And I'm like, but it's very sweeping. And yeah. All right. So this was our first. Oh, you have a final thought, Matt? No, I just wanted to say that's completely riffing off that. Like, I, I feel both ways about it as well, because I like academic argumentation, uh, whether in essays or books. On the other hand, are you going to sit there and tell T.S. Eliot or Emily Dickinson, like, well, your poems weren't actually strictly argument and argued, right? You just kind of made brazen assertions about the society you lived in. Yeah, that's why we need so, a right? new category for it. Th- theory light was floated. It's a good theory yeah. light. I would even call it like poetic theory, right? <laughs> like a- exploratory theory, theory crafting. Which yeah. is what YouTube and podcasts are for, because you can... You can put forward an argument and you don't have to do the work of defending it, which is excellent for all Twitter theory, for all <laughs> academics. Um, so this is our first book review. Um, so I think we should give it a, a, a rating out of four pills or so. <laughs> Why four pills? Well, we can't, we can't Three use, we can't use stars because that would be encouraging the entrepreneurial society. That's true. Well, I'm going to actually rate this differently. I would give it, because I had, when I was actually doing academic work, I had what I would call my Sunday books, which are the books that you want to read for enjoyment, but you're not allowed to like cite in your dissertation. So they're less serious, but more engaging. And as a Sunday book, I would definitely give this a four out of four pills. But as a wow. as an academic book, it's it's hovering more around like, I don't know, Neil Postman level where you where it's you shouldn't take it to put it into an academic argument as elitist as it sounds. That's just the fact of it. Yeah. I mean, I think I would probably I mean, I think I I would rate a book based on what I take the book to be trying to accomplish and how well it did that. So I think that this book for what it was trying to do, which is, I think, be this kind of like theory light, like take on society. I'd probably give it like three and a half pills out of four. A blue, pink, blue, pink, blue, pink, blue. Whichever one is less reactionary. Yeah, I'm hesitant to quantify my uh, my appreciation of this book. Um, at first, it was probably like, I mean, at first it was definitely like one. But then That I is think- true. I had exactly the same experience. I hated it when I started. I was like, this makes no sense. But reading back my notes, I'm like, this is, of 70 pages... This is a really good 70 pages. Yeah. I, yeah, thought, so. I thought that too. It is punchy. It, it hits with, I mean, I think in terms of thinking about Foucault and discipline society and Deleuze and control society, I think I will be thinking about burnout society. And I love the way that it's an ongoing project too because he t- talks about the transparency society next and he, he kind of keeps building on this same idea. I love I love that. I mean, can I just say too, it's funny, like, like, that's such a good example of what I meant too when I was saying, you know, this like theory tendency to make broad, it's like to, you know, this, this fixation on wanting to define the age, right? Like we're in this age now. And it's like, so it's, it's so, uh, you know, um, 
all encompassing and like serious. And it's like, we're now in the burnout society and we used to be in the disciplinary society, but now we're in the achievement society. And it's like, okay, relax. <laughs> yeah. I can see that too. <laughs> I, I liked it a lot more after I watched that documentary about him too. So I'd, I'd go out and wa- I'd go find it, it is in German. You'll just have to watch it with subtitles, but it helped me. It definitely the visuals and, and, and seeing him walking around and interacting with people and talking and the way he talks to his colleagues and other people and the shots, like it just really helps. I still have that documentary open in a tab on my, uh, on my Chrome. I plan to watch it soon. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. This was our first book review. If you, if this is what we should be doing with our patron episodes, let us know comments below but just don't make them too long books because i have to read shit for my dissertation i just don't have time <laughs> as long as they're seven or as long as they're sunday books we're down or articles whatever that'd be fun articles would be fun yeah it's our first try at this let us know what you think thanks as always for continuing to support us uh we sound so much better this year, dudes. Like with the with the new mics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It, it's it's astronomically better, at least to my ears. Yeah, well, you're the one editing them, so you listen to us probably the most of anybody. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, some some of you are more tiring than others. Some of you are <laughs> burning me out faster than others. Oh. I won't say who. Oh. <laughs> All right, see you guys. Bye bye. Woo.